0: And uh, Matthew five verse forty 50, Matthew five forty three. Here I'm tongue tied. Uh, y'all are laughing at that, aren't you? He he's tongue tied and can't talk. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I love this. You have heard. Notice notice what Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you. And and I want that to to kind of sound in your heart. Matthew 5.43 You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Did not even the tax collectors do the same? And we could say, we could put the IRS there today. We could say, do not even the IRS do the same? I'm kidding. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when you, Brother, Brother Register, read this last verse, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when you read it in context with the rest of the scripture, this is how he was saying the heavenly Father is perfect that he causes his sun to shine on the righteous and unrighteous. And that's his big ball of fire in the sky. And he causes his rain to rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Now, when I was young, younger, I would interpret that scripture that the rain was, uh, was a bad thing. And I realized that's not what he's saying. I really really saw that he was because rain brought forth the crop. Rain caused you know, the crops to grow. And they had to have crops. They didn't have, uh, I don't think, Kroger. So, so they relied on their crops for their harvest, right? So, so God calls the rain and sun to shine and the rain to fall on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And that's how he, how he was saying, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, do not have division in your heart toward the righteous and the unrighteous. And I I think this principle, it's it's more than a principle. This is the life of Christ. You know, when he comes, he didn't die for just the godly, because none were godly, right? So he didn't offer himself for the righteous. He offered himself for the unrighteous. And this is where perfection is found is when we offer ourselves for the unrighteous. And this is the, this is the heart and mind of the Lord, if we can hear it. Be ye perfect as your Father is perfect. And the way I preached this in, the, in, in my younger years is I would, of course, go down uh, how you dress, Sister Shirley, what you do, what you don't do. And I never saw the context of what Jesus was saying. I didn't, I didn't put it in context that he was talking about God's love toward God's goodness toward both the righteous and unrighteous. And, And I don't know how long it's been now, maybe a year ago. I was in a study and the Lord had dealt with me with righteousness in the book of Amos. And I got in the book of Amos and lo and behold, I believe righteousness was only in that book one time. And I, I believe it was the Book of Amos anyway. And I um, I, I begin to question the Lord. Lord, did I not hear you right? And what I saw there was the children of Israel were in bitterness one toward another. And we and we've had in our minds of righteousness as just how we look, how we dress, what we do, and what we don't do. But I saw profoundly, and when Brother Redster read this last week, it just jumped out at me uh, mightily that God is speaking of right living, of how we conduct ourselves one toward another. And a lot of times we've confused righteousness uh, with, with what we think right living is, and right living is actually our attitude, our conduct, one toward another. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That God sends the rain on the righteous and unrighteous. And and He says for you to be perfect as your Father is perfect, love your enemies, love those that hate you. Amen. And, And we find in the church system as a whole, a lot of times we don't even love those that, you know, I don't like to use the word go to church, but I'm going to use it for right now. We don't even love those that go to church with us or gather with us, you know, because the reason I don't like to use that is because I believe we are the church, but I'm using that for this context. Christians bicker, moan, bite, devour, tear each other up all the time. You know, someone walk into a certain fellowship. did you see her hair? Or her dress was too short? Or he? Uh, did you know what Brother Wayne did? You know all these these things in the hearts of believers, right? And 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 yet we are knit together. Paul writes in love, and John writes that love covers a multitude of sins. See, it's the love of Christ that draws man to repentance. Amen. The goodness of God through the love of Christ it draws man to repentance because he loved us he gave himself for us and and, and in fact this is this is going to go with uh, I'm sure some of the things I'm going to share today in out of the book of Revelation you can flip over to Revelation chapter 1 I don't know when we'll get to chapter 2 if you if you question me we'll just have to see but there's so much to break down in Revelation chapter 1 it's it's amazing and I believe the rest of the book may flow right out of this first chapter I believe we will find that I'm going to move on from Behold He cometh with clouds. I had a couple more things I wanted to share out of that, but, but I just feel you, you know, we'll circle back around to that maybe later. So this morning I'm going to move on, and we're going to start in verse 9, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. And he said, I, John, your brother and partaker with you, In the tribulation and kingdom and patience, which are in Jesus, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. Now, as we move on here, I want us to look at this real close in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother, am partaker with you in the tribulation and kingdom. So the kingdom of Christ was present in John's day. It wasn't a coming kingdom. So he's declaring he's a partaker of the kingdom. Amen. And he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And at some point we'll, we'll I'm sure, get into this great voice. But a voice as a trumpet. So, so the, the, the voice he heard sounded like a trumpet. It had a, a trumpet had a very distinct sound if you if you study your scripture, there was a call to battle, a call to assembly, and even today in the military a a a trumpet or bugle has a particular sound that will will call uh the the soldiers. I don't know how much it's used today, but it's used in in at least in some of their their formality. I was never a soldier, but I'm around the military all the time. And in the mornings, there's the bugle call or the trumpet sound. But nonetheless, he heard a voice as a trumpet, and he heard it behind him, and he's saying, what, and I, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and, and he hears the voice, and the voice saying, what thou seest, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches, unto Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And, be, and having turned, or being turned, the King James says, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Mark this, seven. And in the midst of the candlesticks, one like a son of man clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about at the breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white as, white as wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto burnished brass, as if it had been refined in a furnace, and his voice as the voice of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Again, notice seven. And out of his mouth proceeded the sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun that shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of hell, or Hades. Write therefore the things which thou sawest, and the things which are, and the things which shall come to pass hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. So so when you come here in the book of Revelation, I, I said this in one of the uh, earlier studies, you're going to see seven used often throughout the book. You're going to see the number seven run throughout this book. You're also going to see number four used often throughout the book. So if you start studying the book, it's not a mistake. What would you say, Brother Calvin? And three. And three. That's right, and three. So you're going to see patterns of numbers. And one. So, So you see these patterns of numbers and every piece speaks. Every little thing is saying something that we need to get a hold of. All right? That's why, it, it, you know, I've been, I've taught, I think, five or six lessons on Behold He Cometh With Clouds, and I told you I could probably do two or three more easy because because they all are, are, they're big subjects. So when we get into this, we're going to get into looking at the Son of Man here and His appearance, and this isn't going to be uh one or two lessons, and we're moving on we're we're going to be here probably you know for quite some time. We'll just see how it goes, but I suspect there's uh, some time so his so John turns and he sees the voice, and I've talked about this often And being turned, he sees one like the son of like the Son of man, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet as dead and 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 I don't know where the scripture's at, but Bob may confide it. Uh, I, I use Brother Bob Jackie to find scriptures, or we all do from time to time, because Bob is a searcher of the Word, and, uh, and he finds scriptures uh, quickly. But no man can see God and live. And see, what John did is he saw him, and he fell at his feet as dead. And that and that is very very significant, even where he fell at his feet, and we're going to get into that in a moment. His feet were as burnished brass. But but before we do that, this thought of seven for a moment. What what was the big deal about seven? Now now another obvious seven that's in here is is in as John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. You know what was the Lord's Day? The seventh day of the week, which was the Sabbath day. In the Old Covenant, the Sabbath day was Saturday. It was not Sunday. It was Saturday. Sunday is the first day of the week. And I know, I know the Christian uh, church took Sunday and said, well, this is the Sabbath of the Lord, and we're, we're really going to talk about some of this too. Is Sunday really the day of rest? No, it's a day of the week. It's really not a day of rest. Because the Sabbath was speaking of something far greater even than, 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 the, than us taking a break from work. And I think it's good to have a day off or two days off. I wouldn't care if I worked three days and had four days off, but that ain't the way it works for me. So uh, I would be all for that. I like four-day weeks. I love them when I have a three-day weekend. But enough about that. So Sabbath, the Sabbath day. If I if I start looking at seven days, the first place I'm going to turn is is in the beginning. So I'd flip back to Genesis. And I'd start there. And you go into Genesis. Um, let's see here. Chapter two. And and there's something profound here in Genesis. And on the seventh day. God ended His work which He had made, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that that in it He had rested from all His work which God created and made. So the Sabbath day is speaking of the Lord's rest. All right? And Adam who, who the, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 talks about the creation of Adam, of mankind, and Adam represents both male and female mankind, and of course his wife was named Eve, entered into God's rest. If you go back and you read before, before sin entered into the garden, what does it speak of? That the water, uh, the garden watered itself, the mist came up and watered itself. You know, Adam was just to, to keep really, what God had done. That's what he was, he was told to do, to keep what God had done. So he, he was placed in a garden of God in something God had done. And this, and this is really powerful to understand in our salvation because, you, you know, just let the cat out of the bag. We, we are placed in what the Lord Jesus has done. That is our Sabbath rest it, it, that's what Jesus says to them. He says, "Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. take my yoke upon you and learn of me for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, and ye shall find rest to your soul and and so so. The Lord Jesus becomes our rest. He becomes our Sabbath day. He himself fulfills the rest of the Lord because we enter into his work. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's even where salvation, our salvation is in his work. Our salvation is not in our works, but our salvation is in his work. And that's what we enter into. And it's it's one of the hardest, I think, things for us to really get a hold of, as simple as it is, that I couldn't save myself. My works couldn't save me. My works couldn't get it done. They never could. I fully rely upon His work. My salvation is His work. That's also my rest. I enter into what He's done. Now, now it doesn't mean I don't work, but I don't work to attain it. See, I don't work to attain salvation. I enter in, I believe, I receive what He's done, and I enter into what He's done. Then I work out from what He's done. So the work I begin to do is out from what he's done. See, see, I want to be careful how I present this because there's a lot of what we call cow's potato Christians that say, well, we, we don't work anything. That's true from the context that I don't work to receive what he's done. But it's, I believe, false from the context that we have nothing to do. Because we are to work out of what He's done. Glory to God. So the first thing, in order to work out of what He's done, we've got to understand what He's done. If I don't understand what He's done, how can I work out of it? How can I live out of something I don't understand? We can't. So it's extremely important to understand what the Lord has done, what He has finished, what He's completed. Now another scripture speaking of the Sabbath day, Exodus thirty-one. Actually, I'm going to read Exodus thirty-five, Exodus thirty-five and one. And it says, and it's all through the book of Exodus dealing with Sabbath. Day. It's all through your Old Testament. It's a, it's why it's one of the reasons Israel, uh, as a nation, got in trouble because they wouldn't keep the Sabbath of the Lord. It says, And Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, These are the words which the Lord hath commanded that you should do them. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be to you a holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whosoever doeth work therein shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your habitations upon the Sabbath day. I mean, that was a serious day. So if we were still under the old law with the Sabbath day and you kindle a fire in your house, you're in trouble. Right? Most of us don't have to worry about kindling a fire because we got thermostats today and we just said turn them up and turn them down. I guess we could say if you turn your thermostat up on the Sabbath day, you're in a lot of trouble. You should be put to death. Now see, if we're under that law at all, you know, the Apostle Paul writes, if we're under the law to the Galatians, we've got to keep the whole law. Yeah. That means this is still in effect if we're under that law. And see, Christians have, have a lot of challenge here because Christians try to live by part of the law and let other parts of it go. Like like I've heard brothers say, well, all the Ten Commandments are still in effect. I believe this is one of them. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So if it's still in effect and you're not doing the Sabbath day ritual, you're in trouble. Right? So if Jesus didn't fulfill the Sabbath day, we're probably, all, we're probably all in trouble yesterday. You could say that's why I got hit in the head with the tree limb yesterday because I was out working on the Sabbath day. Now, I'm kidding saying that, but, but I, I, I've used this before. I can remember, and she's passed on my grandmother and uh, uh, one of the most precious people I've ever known in my life. And it was a Sunday after service. I was out mowing my yard, and I came in, and Mama called. She called me every day, and they could tell you every day I get a phone call from my Mama. And she called and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm out mowing. I've been out mowing my yard. And she said, you don't you know today is Sunday? Because she really believed that you did no work on the Sabbath day. But if she took it to the letter of the law, then she probably shouldn't have gotten in the car and they probably shouldn't have drove to church service and they probably shouldn't have uh, prepared a meal. They should have probably done all that on Saturday. I believe the law reads that way. So if you're under the law, you're under the whole law, right? And, it, and, it's, and it's very important to understand this. You say, why do I understand this? Because it's written in your Bible. And if it's written in your Bible, it's written there for your edification. It's written there for your understanding. It's written there to edify you in the knowledge of Christ. So how how does it edify me in the knowledge of Christ? Because he became, he fulfilled that day. He became the Lord's rest to me. So here's Brother John in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he turns to see one like the Son of Man. And being turned, the description that he gives of Jesus here is nothing like what what people think Jesus is supposed to look like. (laughs) Is it? Because we have, have, most of us, an idea of Jesus of a a Jewish man with with brown hair, maybe blue eyes, brown eyes, whatever color eyes you you think, with a flowing robe and sandals. But John sees one like the Son of Man with, what, hair white as wool, eyes as a flame of fire, feet as burning brass, out of his mouth coming a sharp two-edged sword. And I said a couple weeks ago, he's not, he's not a sword swallower. You know, we, you, you, you see the imagery, though, of a two-edged sword. You know that sword's cutting on both sides. It's coming out of his mouth, and that sword is representing, of course, the Word of God. But he sees him in particular in the seven golden candlesticks. So the description of Jesus is, is really, if, if I look at it, what's the description of Jesus uh, uh, coming from? It's coming from your Old Testament temple or tabernacle. That's what it's coming from. That's where you find brass in your Bible. See, it's not a mistake that his feet are like brass. And it's not a mistake that John fell at his feet as dead. Now, I want want this to hit you, kind of, uh, I like to say hit you in the mouth, but that sounds mean. But I want this to, to really get a hold of you that John sees him in the candlesticks. And in the candlesticks, the candlesticks are the churches. So he doesn't see him outside of the church. He sees him in this very way in the church. So he's in the church with hair white as wool, eyes as a flame of fire, gird about the chest with a golden girdle, speaking of the high of the priesthood, the high priest, with a garment down to his foot and his feet as burning brass, and out of his mouth the two-edged sword. This is in the church. So, so when we read, when we read the scripture in Colossians, and I've read it many times and quoted it, Colossians chapter 2, you are complete in him. Here's how he is. Your completion is in him that has feet as burning brass. So, so if he has feet as burning brass, I might need to understand the feet of burning brass. Right? may be important to me if that's how his feet are. If John goes out of, his way, out of your way to write how his feet are, and John fell at his feet is dead, so now I go back and how do I search this out? Well, I have to, I have to allow the Spirit of God to, to guide me, and as I begin to search this, I go back and, and I'm going to read out the uh, New International Version, Exodus 27, 1-8. through 8. Exodus twenty-seven, one through eight, and here and here you here Moses has went up into the cloud here, up into the Mount Sinai to receive the instructions of the Lord, of how to build the uh, tabernacle, and the articles of furniture in the tabernacle. And he says, and he and the Lord tells him in Exodus twenty-seven, build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners. Here's this number four. So, And a horn is at each of the four corners. Does anybody know how the children of Israel camped around the tabernacle? It was it not groups of fours, right? So they were, they were in three groups of fours. And there was a horn of four corners, and a horn at the four corners, so that the horns and the altar are of one piece, and overlay the altar with bronze, or brass. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes, and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and firepans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledger of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the ring so that they will be on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. You make it exactly like God showed Moses. And and so this was an altar of brass, a brazen altar. And so what did they do with this altar? Does anybody know what they did with this altar? They offered sacrifices for sins. They offered the burnt offering. It became a a place of offering in in the life of the Jews It was a constant, perpetual thing. It was going on all the time. So all the time, the Jews would come to the temple or tabernacle, initially the tabernacle and later on the temple, and when they would come there for sin, what they would do is they would bring an animal sacrifice, and the priests would lay their hands on that sacrifice, and what what that was speaking of was they were laying all the sin and shame, all the guilt, all the missing of the mark upon that animal. And that animal was, was being judged for their sins, and his judgment was to death. Him or her, whatever kind of animal it was, it was put to death. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Glory to God. And in the book of, I believe it's in the book of Leviticus, I got it somewhere here, here in my massive amount of notes this morning, it tells you that the life of all flesh is in the blood. So the blood was signifying the life of the flesh. So when, when the children of Israel came to the temple... And they came to worship God. And we, we sing a song here, I will enter His courts with thanksgiving in my mouth. Well, if I'm an Israelite and I'm entering the courts of the Lord, the first thing that i met with when I walk into that fenced-off area, that tent, tented area, is i met with the brass altar. So the first place of worship I come to is an altar of sacrifice. A continuous altar of sacrifice confronts me every time I come to worship the Lord. So, and it's continual. So, so, so the blood meant something to God. I, I was reading, uh, I think it was this week, and I've read, read from these, uh, these fellows uh, uh, before, but I was reading where one guy... was was trying to say the blood was only applied to the Jews and that the Gentiles didn't need the blood. And he said the reason the apostles said something like that, the reason the apostles applied it to the Gentiles was because they were Judeo-centric. I actually responded back to him and I said, well, uh, I forget the exact words I sent him, but I said, didn't the apostles speak by the Holy Ghost? So if they spoke by the Holy Ghost, it wasn't because they were Judeo-centric. It was because it was required of the Lord. And what these brothers were trying to show, and, and or these fellows, I'd be careful to say what I'd say. But what they were trying to show is, well, you were already all right with God. That Jesus just came to show you how God felt about you. And I and I say, yeah, you're right. He did. And he went to the cross and crucified you. That's how he felt about you. Amen. He brought you to death, and that's what that's what this altar is speaking of. Is that I'm in need of a savior. I'm I'm a sinner. And I need salvation. So so the thing with the Jewish ritual is they can never get out of their sin. And every year, you know, multiple times a year, you know, the blood is continually flowing in this setting. In fact, when they, when uh, you, you read it in the book of Leviticus 4, it goes through the sin offering. I was going to read all this, and for time's sake, I'm going to move on. But, it, but in Leviticus 4, it goes through the sin offering. The, the priest, uh, Aaron and the priesthood, when they were consecrated, they were consecrated for seven days. Seven days, this, this, this ritual was going on, of them slaying an animal in the morning, an animal at night, I believe, for their sins for them to be a priest. So you think about it. All day long, their, their mind, think, think what Aaron and those priests are thinking of all day long. The slaying of the animal. Getting this right. Had to perform it just right. They had to perform it according to the Word of God. They just, just didn't do it any old way. They had, to, they had to go out and perform according to the Word of God. Because it was speaking. And that's why God said to Moses to set it up like I have shown thee in the mouth. Because this was going to speak of the death of Jesus Christ. That on him is laid the sins of us all. Just like on these, on these animals in type and shadow. When I say type and shadow, I mean the symbolism. They were symbolic to what God was going to do in Christ. And that's and that's what the first encounter with the brazen altar is, is that on him is laid the sins of us all. Without the shedding of his blood, there is absolutely no remission of your sins. If Jesus didn't die, you are still in your sins. That's it. We have no cleansing but by his blood. So so we we. So the apostle or the prophet John, not the Apostle John, but the Prophet John and in, in John written in John one uh twenty two, speaking of John the Baptist. Turn over to John one twenty two. It said, They said therefore unto him that that is the, the Jewish people, I, I guess Pharisees said to see you can back up and see specifically who that is. But they said therefore unto him, Who art thou that we may Give an answer to them that sent us, what sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said Isaiah the prophet. And they, and they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why then baptizest thou, if thou art not the Christ? Neither Elijah, neither the prophet. John answered them, saying, I baptize in water in the midst of you, saying, of one whom ye know not, even he cometh after me, the lashed of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptized. And on the next day or the morrow, he seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God. Here's what all the sacrifices spoke of. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He taketh it away. It's laid on Him. Amen. Take away sin the world. This is He of whom I said, after me cometh a man who has come before me, for He was before me, and I knew Him not, but that He should be made manifest to Israel. For this reason, this cause came out baptized in water. You want to know why John came baptized in water? That the Lamb of God would be made known may manifest to Israel. And John bear witness saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and it abode upon Him. And I knew Him not, but He that sent me to baptize in water, He sent in me upon whomsoever thou shalt see the Spirit descending and abiding upon Him, the same as He that baptizeth in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So our first encounter with Jesus in the brazen altar is He is our sacrifice for sins. That's who he is. So when I come to Him and receive Him, I receive His work. All my sins are laid upon him. And see, if we say we have no sin, John says we're what? Deceiving ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. But where all of our sins are gone, they're giving, they're laid up on him. Now, now flip over to Hebrews 9. See, see this thing is throughout the whole Old Testament of, of, of blood, and and if you read Hebrews, if you read the book of Hebrews in your New Testament, it's going to the whole book's pretty much going to refer back to the Old Testament. So to understand the book of Hebrews, can't understand anything without the Spirit of God. But the Spirit of God's going to push us to go back and read the Old Testament because He's going to refer back to the Old Testament. In Hebrews nine eighteen, and this is this is the same. This is speaking of the same encounter of Moses that Moses had with the Lord when he was going up into the mount. Before he went up into the mount, if you go back and you read read it about from Exodus, I don't know, let's say eighteen through thirty or twenty eight, whatever. There's the encounter. God comes down to Sinai. And, and Moses goes up into the mountain, receives the Ten Commandments. And I've said before, that's where, where we get the movie The Ten Commandments from years ago. And Charleston Heston played in it. And a lot of us had that understanding of the Ten Commandments. Amen. But nonetheless, it's a whole lot more detailed than that movie. <laughs> I like the movie, so I'm not against it. But, but, uh, but there's a whole lot more detail in the book of Exodus than probably what Charleston Heston brought out in the movie. So it probably pays us uh, to read the book of Exodus. You know, anyway, just saying, wherefore, even the first covenant hath not been dedicated without blood. So when the covenant was read to the children of Israel, and this is what it's saying here, for when every commandment hath been spoken by Moses unto all the people according to the law, now, this is before he had the commandments on the stones. I do believe. You can go check it and see. See if I'm right or wrong. He took the blood of calves and goats, whipped water, scarlet wood, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and the people. Now, those commandments that were up on stone, they were in the book. So the book he had, they were in there. And later on, the Ten Commandments are written on a stone, but Moses sprinkled both the book and the people, saying, and he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded to you work, or to you. You're joined, or the blood of this covenant you've been joined to. You're joined to the blood of this covenant. And that's, and that's what Israel was joined to. When they sinned, they would have to bring the blood of animals and it was a continual process because the blood of animals could never purify their conscience from their sins. Ever could. But it was continually in their mind, and they were continually coming to the Lord, and they were continually offering them to God. Moreover, the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry he sprinkled in like manner with blood. And according to the law. I may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood and apart from the shedding of blood there is no remission. It was necessary therefore that the copies of the things in the heavens. So this is a copy. A type, a shadow. So all this is a pattern. A type, of shadow. All all what Moses was doing was a pattern. According to the writer here of the things in the heavens. That that It was necessary, therefore, that the copies of the things in the heavens should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice or with better sacrifices than these. Here's the better sacrifice. So Christ entered not into the holy place made with hands, like in the pattern to the truth. So he didn't enter into the holy place made, made with hands like that was a pattern to the truth. But he entered into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as a high priest to enter into the holy place year by year with the blood not his own. Else must he have suffered since the foundation of the world... But now once at the end of the ages, or the end of the world, the King James says, but now once at the end of the world. That word world is actually age. So this translation is probably more accurate. It says, but now once at the end of the ages hath he been manifested to put away sin, how? By the sacrifice of himself. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die after this come of judgment. Now, I'm going to stop right here and then we're going to read the next verse. Alright. This is real important. Because we say, when you die, you know, I, I, I grew up in the teaching I grew up under, this scripture would be read, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after he dies, he's judged. But when you die, in fact, they probably judged you 70 different ways, but this was one of them. You were appointed to die. When you died, you were judged. Now, man was appointed to death all the way back to Adam. In the day ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. So the appointment of death was given to mankind. Glory to God. Now... Verse 28, so Christ, here's the answer, so Christ, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, so who bore your appointment with death was sin. So he bore the sins of many, and he shall appear the second time apart from sin, to them that wait for him unto salvation. All right. Now, this is a very important verse. He shall appear the second time. All right. To understand this, you've got to go back into the Old Testament. I'm always going to send you back. Because the, the Bible interprets the Bible, and it's all speaking of Jesus Christ. When the high priest would enter in with the blood, you know, we're talking about it's it's necessary to have blood, and he's talking about the pattern of the truth. The high priest would enter in on the Day of Atonement, and he'd take the blood into the Holy of Holies. If he's not accepted, guess who doesn't come out of it? He doesn't appear a second time. He dies. If God doesn't accept that offering, that high priest isn't coming out of that holy of holies. He's not coming out of the presence of God. So so how we know Jesus' sacrifice is accepted is He appears the second time unto salvation. When He appeared unto you when you were born again, what happened? He appeared and you said, My sins have been rolled away and I have been redeemed. I have been set free. I have been saved. It immediately appears in your heart when you receive Him that He has been accepted that His sacrifice has satisfied the requirement of sacrifices for all time. He came out Not only does He appear unto us, He appeared unto them after His death. He rose from the dead and He appeared unto them for forty days. And that appearance unto them was speaking that He has been accepted. That His sacrifice has been accepted by the Lord. Amen. Amen. See, so he told him, and Johnny said, I go away and the world seeth me no more, but you see me. Now, those disciples there, they literally saw him again. Because he, he appeared to them, and, and, and Thomas, in and so much, Thomas didn't believe him when he appeared, did he? So Thomas says, unless I put my hand in his side and feel the nail scars in his hand, I will not believe. So Jesus shows up in the room. He just shows up. He doesn't open the door. He just shows up because he's already there. He's already in the midst. And he appears and he says, Here, Thomas, put your hand in my side and put and touch my hands. He appeared. Again. And that appearance is that He has borne our sins. And that's how He appears in your heart. When you're born again, you automatically know that He has borne my sins. That Isaiah 53, and I've got to read this and we'll stop, but turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is done, that it has been complete, that it is finished. Isaiah 53 is one of the most powerful scriptures, sets of scriptures in your Bible. Who hath believed our message or our report? Verse 1. And to whom hath the arm of Jehovah been revealed? For he grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs. What did he bear? Our griefs, and carried our sorrows, and we did esteem him stricken, spit of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Jehovah hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So your iniquity was laid up on him. It's appointed unto man once to die. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And those that look for Him shall He appear without sin unto salvation. So He appears in your heart without sin, rolling your sins away and bringing you into the new creation man. See, after that, the judgment. Flip back to Hebrews 9 and think with me. I, I'm excited here. Hebrews 9, where you were just at. Verse, what is it, 28? After that, the judgment. 27, Bob says. So, so we have and inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this come up judgment, the American Standard says, I'll read it in the King James 2. And it says almost something, and as is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he, he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. See, the judgment was after his death. And here's what I saw here. You can check this out. You can agree with me, disagree with me, but I, I believe this. This is speaking of the high priest. When he came out of that tabernacle, or when he came out of the Holy of Holies, they were judged righteous for the next year. If he didn't come out of there, they were judged in sin. So Christ was offered to bear our sins. So when He raised out of that tomb, when He came out of there, it was accepted. He brought forth... Have you ever read the Scripture that He would bring forth judgment and the victory? When He raised from the dead, He brought forth judgment to victory. He brought forth judgment over sin, hell, and death. That's what He tells John on the Isle of Patmos. I have the keys... Of death, hell, and the grave. Amen. I'm victorious over them all. Amen. So our victory over death is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Amen. So so without the shedding of His blood, there's no remission. But with the shedding of His blood, when you have received Him, you are alive from the dead. And the reason you're alive from the dead is that He lives See, if He never raised from the dead, you couldn't be alive from the dead. If He had offered Himself and just died, you couldn't be alive from the dead. You'd still be in your sins. But the victory is, He that knew no sin became sin for you. He bore our sin. He completely took it away. Christians have a hard time with that. I've had a hard time with that most of my Christian walk. He took away my sin. He really did it. He didn't maybe do it. He didn't kind of do it. He did it. He bore it. He became the sacrifice. Everything was laid up on him. So the judgment, that, that brazen altar that we started with, his feet of brass speaks of that judgment of death that Jesus took upon himself. That's why the first article of furniture you, got, you, you, get, you encountered in the tabernacle was the judgment of death because it was speaking of his death. And all the way through the ministry of that temple, you're going to find that blood. You know what? You're going to find it all the way through the ministry of that temple. When you start going through that temple, you're going to find the priest bringing the blood. He's going to bring it into the holy place. He's going to bring it into the most holy place. Because that blood is the the foundation, the the starting point, it's the starting point of our entire walk with Christ, is receiving Him for our sins. Is knowing He takes our sins away. When I... See the blood. We see song when I see the blood, they pass over us. And see, see, the reason that is, is because we're included in his blood. We're included in his offering. We have received what God has done. We didn't do it, but we received what He did. He laid on Him the sin of us all. And he brought forth judgment to victory over sin. See, so you have no sin. Or no sin of yours is laid upon you. Not saying you don't ever sin. I'm saying that the missing of the mark that you do has been laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we sin, John says, we have what? An advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. So we have an advocate. We always have His blood, because it was laid upon Him. And the, and the, and the hard part is, and, and I'm winding down. But the hard part is for a believer is to just get that, receive that, that that. We'll battle most of our Christian walk trying to remove sin. And, uh, and, uh, and what's wrong with that, Sister Sheila, is he already did. Now, I'm not telling you God doesn't want a pure and holy life out of you. Sure, he does. But, but that pure and holy life is the Lord Jesus himself living in you. And what you begin to know is not I, but Christ that liveth in me. You come into a whole other dimension of living, and it's the life of Christ in you. It's not your good works. It is the work that we enter into, where I started today. We enter into the Sabbath rest of God, that He finished the work, and He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and that's speaking of of having all rule, power, and authority. And he sat down in all rule, power, and authority saying it's done, it's complete, it's finished. I did it. And now we enter in through the power of him that did it. Amen. And one more scripture that was real important. I'm going to read it and, and, and I will shut up. And Jackie, uh, Jackie's new. Jackie, I close a few times. And sometimes I preach two messages. And I and I tell people you get a double portion. But in in Romans 4, 25, and I love this. I, I don't even know what translation I'm reading out of, so I copied it off the internet. So he was delivered over to death for our trespasses. Get that. He was delivered for our trespasses. It was laid up on Him and was raised to life for our justification. So our offenses are laid on Him and He carried them all just like we read in Isaiah 53. It's appointed and the man wants to die. He took our appointment with death. It was laid up on Him and He was raised For our justification. So we are justified through His resurrection. Same thing. Speaking of the high priest coming out of that temple is our justification. We are justified in His life. Glory to God. In the fact that He was raised from the dead, we have been justified. Do you think you're justified? Do you believe you're justified? You need to. You have been justified by the work of Jesus Christ. And see, this is what John gets met with on the Isle of Patmos. When he gets met with the brazen altar, he's met with feet of burning brass and the judgment of the offering of the sacrifice of Christ is what John begins to be met with. Glory to God. Now I have to stop there or I'll preach for another hour. And I could do that, but I won't.